Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In August 2020, Facebook released a video featuring an avatar named Morgan explaining safety features in Horizons, its 3D virtual environment that users can explore in the Oculus headset. Here, you can connect with other people as you explore and build worlds together. The avatars you'll meet are real people, so be kind and treat them with respect. When you're in Horizon, you're always in control with easy access to our safety features. With a single tap, you'll enter a personal safe zone where you can take a moment away from other people and your surroundings. The company, which has hitched its future on virtual reality, is clearly focused on how to make these environments safe. Last November, Financial Times reporter Hannah Murphy reported on an internal Facebook memo from March that year, outlining the company's plans to address safety in its virtual reality environment, which it calls the metaverse. The memo was written by Andrew Bosworth, then the executive in charge of Facebook's push into virtual reality, and now the chief technology officer of the entire company, which has been renamed Meta to emphasize the importance it believes virtual reality will play in its future. In the memo, Bosworth said he wants virtual worlds to have, quote, almost Disney levels of safety, unquote. But he also acknowledged that moderation, quote, at any meaningful scale is practically impossible, unquote. Murphy reported that while Facebook was exploring how best to use artificial intelligence in its social VR environment, it was not built yet. Bosworth suggested that in VR, the company should pursue, quote, a stronger bias towards enforcement along some sort of spectrum of warning, successively longer suspensions, and ultimately expulsion from multi-user spaces, unquote. In September of 2021, Bosworth joined Nick Clegg, Facebook's vice president of global affairs, to release a memo on building the metaverse responsibly announcing a $50 million fund for research into how to develop virtual reality products safely. The company said that through the program, it will be partnering with organizations like Sesame Workshop and Women in Immersive Tech. These are all laudable efforts. But Bosworth, who is a 15-year veteran of Facebook and is known to be one of Zuckerberg's closest confidants, is also known for taking a harder line on the bounds of the company's responsibilities when it comes to content moderation. Perhaps Bosworth's best-known written artifact is the 2016 internal memo known as The Ugly, which, taken as text alone, remains a totemic example of Silicon Valley callousness. Bosworth claimed the memo, revealed by BuzzFeed in 2018, was meant to push the internal debate about the company's role in the world, providing a rationale for Facebook's rapacious growth in service to its mission to connect people. Bosworth wrote in his memo that, quote, maybe it costs a life by exposing someone to bullies, unquote. Now, the company is understood to have played a role in multiple atrocities, such as the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar. In December, Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried interviewed Bosworth and asked how he plans to make the metaverse any safer than Facebook. So assuming people want to spend time in the metaverse, how do you avoid whether it's a terrorist planning going on or just misinformation from being spread when you bring all the world that close together? I think it's not even really a metaverse issue. It's an issue that we face today with the tools that we have, like WhatsApp and and Messenger. How do we want to balance our ability to communicate privately, private from governments, private from corporations, versus, no, I want to make sure that nobody's having a conversation that I don't like 
and therefore we should sacrifice some of that privacy. And as you mentioned, this isn't a metaverse issue. It's a here and now issue. That's I mean, right. If you look at January 6th, a lot of the conversations leading up to January 6th happened online. A good number of them happened on your platform. Do you guys feel you did everything you could to stop it? Or is it more, this is an inevitable trade-off of bringing the world together? When you bring the internet together, you bring together people who otherwise wouldn't find themselves, including people who are in marginalized or at-risk communities. How do you do that without also bringing together communities that you'd rather not bring together? Uh, people who are um, have you know violent ideologies. Um, and I don't think it's a solvable problem. Those things come hand in hand. I can't help but wonder, when push comes to shove and growth is on the line, which version of Facebook will reveal itself to be in control of the metaverse? The one portrayed in the neatly edited animations promising Disney-like safety or reassuring prose of recent memos from Bosworth and Clegg? Or the one espoused by Bosworth and the Ugly? Where will the company draw the line on how much harm is acceptable in the environments it builds? This week's podcast has two segments. We're going to hear from Vice News reporter Carter Sherman about her story from last week titled, Woman Says She Was Virtually Gang Raped in Facebook's Metaverse, detailing an incident that represents an early test of Facebook's ability to create a safe environment. Then, I speak with Dr. Carly Kasurik, a cultural historian specializing in the study of new media technologies and video gaming, about a story from 1993 that presaged some of the questions we're faced with when thinking about safety and abuse in virtual environments. First up, Carter Sherman. My name is Carter Sherman, and I am a reporter at Vice News covering gender and sexuality. Can you tell me a little bit about your beat and the sorts of things that you write uh, regarding gender and sexuality? I cover a vast spectrum of things. Obviously, gender and sexuality can refer to many, many different issues of the day. But some of the top stuff that I focus on is sexual violence. It is reproductive health and rights. It is women in politics. And I'm a woman on the internet. I speak to a lot of other women on the internet. And so I think a lot about what it means to be a woman or to have a marginalized identity and to exist online. So I got in touch with you after seeing this headline on Vice. A woman says she was virtually gang raped in Facebook's metaverse. Um, what happened? Last year, a woman named Nina Jane Patel posted the story on Medium, where she alleged that she was, as you just said, quote unquote, virtually gang raped. I'm actually just going to quote from exactly her Medium piece where she says, within 60 seconds of joining, I was verbally and sexually harassed. Three to four male avatars with male voices, essentially, but virtually gang raped my avatar and took photos. As I tried to get away, they yelled, don't pretend you didn't love it and go rub yourself off to the photo. So Ms. Patel was specifically participating in Horizon Venues, which is one of Facebook's multiple uh, metaverse realms, essentially. And her story, for whatever reason, didn't really seem to garner a lot of traction until this week when I published a story on it, when she did an interview with the Daily Mail, when several other outlets started to cover what had happened. And since then, Facebook has said that they are sorry that this happened. A spokesperson told me that this was a really unfortunate incident and that they had developed several tools to address sexual misconduct, including a block feature and a way to report sexual misconduct. But I think what's really important to know here is that this is not the first time that this has happened regarding Facebook and its new metaverse. Last December, The Verge reported that a beta tester had said that she was sexually harassed in the metaverse. And she said that it felt very real, that it felt very damaging to her. And again, in that case, Facebook said, you know, 
this was super unfortunate. They specifically said then that the beta tester had not acted fast enough to use the block feature. And so some people saw that as essentially victim blaming. A Facebook exec essentially called it very good feedback, which is somewhat of a tone deaf comment, in my opinion. You mentioned the prior event that The Verge reported on. Uh, There was also a a column uh, in The Guardian by Arwa Madawi that uh, you uh, referenced in your piece. You know, what are you able to tell about the company's overall response? Um, And I understand there's news on that today. There is news on that today. Facebook announced that they were creating what they're calling a personal boundary in Horizon Worlds and Horizon Venues, which is essentially a four foot block where your avatar cannot get within four feet or whatever feels like four feet of another avatar. And this is a setting that is going to be turned on universally by default. So at this point in time, you cannot turn it off. And I did reach out to a spokesperson and ask, you know, in the future, will that change? Can someone minimize that particular bubble? And they said, yes, that's something they're going to look at exploring. Interestingly, in the press release about this new feature, they called this uh, a way to address hand harassment, which was, I found to be a intriguing way of putting it. Presumably uh, because there there aren't uh, any legs or feet. You know, it's PR. They may not want to draw more attention to this burgeoning problem. What really struck me when I was thinking through this story and thinking about it afterwards, because it did stick with me, was this idea of the metaverse, particularly in Facebook's conceptualization of the metaverse, because obviously there are many companies that are building out into whatever this nebulous frontier is, is that they're really thinking about this as a utopian space and how particularly violating and upsetting it would be for someone to try to go into this space and feel like an explorer and feel like you're on this new quest for humanity and then to be sexually harassed. It's frankly kind of disappointing, but also not at all surprising that sexual misconduct would exist in the metaverse because it exists everywhere else online. And we haven't found really great ways of moderating it, stopping it, either virtually or in real life. So what were some of the reactions that you had to the piece once it was published? Well, I, as I said, am a woman online, so I get a fair amount of hate mail and comments. And this sparked more of a response than I thought it would. I did in the story put out a call for tips, basically saying, if you have a personal experience or thought on this, please reach out. And several people did. You know, I remember at least one person reached out and just really minimized how upsetting this could be for someone. They specifically referred to, you know, I don't know, uh, how PG-13 or R-rated you keep this podcast, but they was, they specifically referred to, in gaming, a lot of people like to teabag as a sort of celebratory gesture. And this person was like, you know, this happened to me. It wasn't a big deal. I get over it. And, you know, that's fine for you. Uh, I think people can maybe go back and forth on whether or not it's great to have that happen in gaming anyway. But Nina Jane Patel was saying that this was upsetting to her. Other people have said that their similar experiences in the metaverse in any kind of gaming have been upsetting to them. And I think we cannot tell people that your experience wasn't real or that it wasn't hurtful. We just have to listen to them when they say that that's the case. Now, I understand uh, some folks uh, sent you a a rape in cyberspace. They did. Multiple people flagged that to me. Had you seen that before you wrote this piece or encountered this piece of news? 
I hadn't at all. And I found it really, really compelling. I think especially because it spoke to a really different type of internet era. It spoke to a time when the internet was much more of a wild west, which is the internet that I kind of remember growing up with. And it's funny to me that now we have these companies that have commandeered so much of the way that we interact with one another. We have Facebook, we have Twitter, and yet it's the exact same questions that we're still dealing with decades on. These enormous companies have not necessarily found better ways and have maybe found worse ways of sorting out these issues. I feel like one of the things that is something that people are contending with is the reality that harms online are real, that they, they can have an indel- leave an indelible mark on people, um, that the psychological effects of things that happen in virtual environments, whether it's a social media platform or a virtual reality platform, can produce real trauma. I mean, that, that, that seems to be something that we're learning. We're seeing more and more of the blending, um, whether it's incitement to violence or you know, other types of offline consequences. I think that that's at the core of this issue is we're moving always into a direction where what's real and what's virtual, those boundaries are dissolving. And what I do online impacts how I move through the real world, which I think is actually kind of an antiquated term. I try not to use it. So I apologize for using it just now. And one of the things that struck me in this rape and cyberspace is in the story, the author talks specifically about the dissolution between words and deeds and how we have to weigh whether or not your words can have as much meaning or do as much harm as your deeds do. I think a lot about the sexual harassment and online harassment that I have gotten as a journalist. And, you know, that stuff has been very upsetting to me a lot of the time. It's, I mean, I am public about the fact that I've been sexually assaulted in my real life. And some of the harassment that I've dealt with online has hurt me in similar ways as the actual sexual harassment that occurred to me. And I think that we really do have to think about how do we have accountability in these spaces? Not just how do we protect people, because in the real world, there are all these ways that we tell women to protect themselves and that really could people keep people safer. But how do we also make sure that when someone does something to you online, that their actions are taken seriously and result in real consequences? And what should those consequences be also? Your other story this week in some ways has some parallels when you think about you know, those themes. Um, so you wrote with Tess Owen uh, about white nationalists and how they're hijacking the anti-abortion movement. Do you see parallels? I definitely do. In reporting that story, we spent a fair amount of time on Facebook, on Telegram, and in some other unsavory corners of the web. And this is how all of this stuff foments. These people, these white nationalists, have to find ways of talking to one another online. And then, of course, that spilled out into the real world. We saw that on January 6th. We saw that at the March for Life, which is the largest annual anti-abortion gathering in the country. And this year, uh, Patriot Front, which is a white nationalist group, showed up and tried to use the March for Life as a recruitment opportunity. If Patriot Front wasn't able to talk to one another online, would they have done that? Would they have been able to pull off that kind of coordination? Probably not. I think that oftentimes people do not take sexual harassment and sexual violence seriously enough. There are all of these other ways that people talk about violence and incite violence online that should be, how do I put this? 
we just don't take sexual violence and harassment seriously when it happens online. And it makes me very concerned about the ways that we don't take other kinds of harassment and violence and talk about those things seriously online. I guess on some level, Facebook as a company, my bias has probably come through after dozens of episodes of this podcast, but I don't regard it as a a sort of trustworthy entity with regard to handling these matters. Um, It's proven itself over and over not to have the right approach, not to have clearly the right incentives to, to address these problems. And so, I don't know, I found your piece to be a harbinger of possibly quite bad things to come. I am a little impressed that they acted so swiftly with this personal boundaries tool. I mean, it's a blunt instrument and who knows how long it will last or what kind of loopholes people will find in it because I am positive that people will. That's the history of the internet. But clearly Facebook wants to be seen as a leader in this space. And maybe this is something that they're going to set a standard for because other companies are also developing metaverses of their own, whatever a metaverse is supposed to be. That said, yes, Facebook, of course, has a history of throwing up its hands and saying, wow, we couldn't have predicted that this particular issue would occur on our platform. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it now. And there's no way you should hold us accountable for it. And I would hate to see that history repeat itself in this particular problem. You know, you could you could argue, well, there's always been lechery and badly behaved men. Why would we expect anything else in a virtual environment that we wouldn't get in the real world? What would you say to that? I would say that these are certainly issues that occur in the real world. And I think addressing these issues in the metaverse does start with the real world. We have to figure out ways of teaching people to take sexual harassment and violence seriously in the real world, because what they're doing in the metaverse is a reflection of the attitudes they've been taught out here. That said, if you're also trying to say that you're creating this new glamorized, amazing space for all of humanity to frolic and learn in, I think you have to understand that you can be held responsible for the ways that humanity acts in that. I think you can't just pretend that there's no culpability for creating a platform where harm can be done. Carter, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, Dr. Carly Kosurek, a cultural historian and associate professor of digital humanities and media studies at Illinois Tech, who specializes in the study of new media technologies and video gaming. Carly is the author of two books, Coin-Operated Americans, Rebooting Boyhood at the Video Game Arcade, which chronicles the rise of video game arcades in the U.S., and Brenda Laurel, Pioneering Games for Girls, which considers Laurel's career as a game designer and researcher. I noticed Kasurik tweet about a story called A Rape in Cyberspace, first published in the Village Voice in December of 1993. Written by Julian Dibble, 
The story is remarkably prescient about the issues of creating safe online environments and nearly predicts the type of event Carter Sherman reported on this week. I caught up with Carly about the story and her thoughts on whether we can build virtual environments that are safe and healthy. Uh, my name is Carly Kasturik. I'm an associate professor of digital humanities and media studies and director of humanities graduate programs at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Carly, tell me about your research. So I come out of a cultural history background, and so I primarily look at the history of video games. So my first book uh, is a book called Coin Operated Americans about uh, the video game arcade in the United States, uh, mainly in the 1970s and into the early 1980s. Uh, more recently, uh, I wrote a book uh, for a series I edited about game designers, and that book's about Brenda Laurel and kind of the work she did in Games for Girls, but also virtual reality and kind of um, thinking about her as a designer. And then I've been working on a book about Ultima, and I currently have a grant-funded project uh, looking at the history of the Games for Girls movement more broadly, because I'm really interested in kind of the successes and failures of interventions, because we dump a lot of money into things, and I'm not sure we always do that critical reflection piece to see, like, what was working and not working. And sometimes we abandon things that were working really well. I noticed a, a tweet from you the other day, which is why I got in, in touch. You wrote, petition to make every single employee at Facebook meta read, quote, a rape in cyberspace, unquote, and explain clearly what they're doing to make their brave new world suck less than that. What is a rape in cyberspace? A rape in cyberspace is a 1993 Village Voice article by Julian Double, who later wrote a book called My Tiny Life that that piece was included in. It was about like life on the, on the internet at that time, basically. A Rape in Cyberspace is specifically about a sexual assault in a virtual environment. It's in uh, Lambda Moo, which is this like text-based environment. Um, I first read it in maybe 2003 uh, when I was an undergraduate, and it really blew my mind, right? Like I took this really great class, um, it was taught by Tony Gorey, who's who's deceased now, um, but he got one of the first PhDs in computer science at MIT. And he is just this really brilliant, really thoughtful person, right? Like he loved technology. He really loved the possibilities of technology, but he was also hyper aware of the limitations and how much they're embedded in kind of our social realities, right? And we read that piece and it was just like, Oh, oh, right. Like I get it now because I I love the internet, right? Like I'm from rural Texas. I grew up very isolated. Like it was so exciting to be able to connect with other people. Like I, I'm still friends with people that were like grownups I met when I was a teenager and which always sounds really creepy now, but they were just like nice people that I still know, right? Like they've been invested in me professionally for like 30 years or 15, 20 years. Um, you know, I, it was like, I knew there were bad things happening in the internet, obviously. Like, I've watched some of those things happen. Uh, but I hadn't seen someone really talk about that in terms of the stakes for the people involved or, like, how real these things are. Because I think, and, and I think, I think Dibble's so smart about this, right? He talks about things being half real or, like, semi-real. Um, and later we get, like, a whole, you know, there's, like, a whole book called Half Real about, about video games. But he's so smart about that because it's not not real, right? Like it's not real the way something in, in your daily life is, but it's part of your daily life and it's like kind of real and it definitely has some real implications. It's a really smart piece, right? And and the fundamental problem there, you know, in, in all these things is like, how do you make a system? How do you make a, a culture or a space 
where we're not having sexual assault of people that are just like trying to live their lives or enjoy an environment that was actually built to be playful and fun for them. You know, I I think we're bad at it. I, I don't think we have solved this problem at all. I actually, in some ways, think it has gotten much worse because the scale has has gone up exponentially, right? Like the number of people online in 1993 is like nothing compared to the number of people online in, you know, 2022. And I feel like companies are increasingly like unwilling to deal with how difficult moderation is. And so you see like this kind of like, and I mean, Facebook's notorious for this, right? Where it's like, oh, like you can sexually harass people, but don't show a picture of someone breastfeeding. We will take that down and ban your account for a month. And it's like completely bizarre, right? And and a lot of that's because it's automated. And so like the computer thinks that's bad. So it's bad, but how is making things like more realistic and wilder going to address like this existing problem? Like we have a harassment problem, we have an abuse problem, and now we're going to build like crappy second life and like act like we don't need to moderate that. But in fact, like, you know, second life struggled with moderation and how to deal with this. And second life was really smart in some ways, like about, you know, it was actually kind of difficult to set up an account and they knew who you were. So if you did something way off the rails, like they could ban you, they could track you down. But I see very little evidence that companies running our platforms today actually want to deal with the fact that they're creating communities and they're creating spaces that, you know, sound really exciting and liberating, but like liberation for some people often means, you know, abuse and harassment for others. And that's awful, right? Take us back to uh, the story. Let's let's just hit the yeah. high points. I don't want to um, retell the story here. Yeah. Um, but just the setup of it. Um, what goes on in Lambda Moo? What is the Bungle affair? Yeah. So Lambda Moo again, like text-based environment, and it had this idea of being kind of like a mansion, right? And so it's all described with text, and people would go in, and you could like make your own room by like just describing it and writing it out people could visit if you let them you know and and you could describe who your character was and so everyone's interacting through these text-based descriptions um and one of the main spaces is the living room right and so like people hang out in the living room when they want to interact with other people kind of in an open way there's a character who comes in and is pretending i mean everyone's pretending but anyway this character comes in that's a clown-ish named Mr. Bungle and like basically goes around doing kind of like increasingly like aggressive weird things right and like the description of that character is really grotesque like they're already kind of just showing up to be kind of uncomfortable he's using voodoo dolls like in game right this is like really abstract um to kind of like do things to other people's characters and it's really 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 upsetting and you know some of the people that are affected by this like want this to be dealt with and the community like basically doesn't know what to do and there's like this kind of like unsatisfying effort to have a conversation about it and then it's just like kind of a mess right and yeah I think we've all seen something unfold like this um in some setting right where it's like there wasn't a rule against that because we didn't think anybody would do that and now somebody did that and now we don't know what to do right and nobody wants to be in charge of deciding what to do because then like you're in charge in a way that maybe you don't want to be 
I don't know. I talk a lot about like somebody has to be the grown up in the room, right? And you see this with like early, well, still we're seeing with game companies, right? Where we're like, you know, watching this Activision Blizzard mess and it's like, oh yeah, they were going on like pub crawls through cubicles and harassing people. And I'm like, they were doing what now? Right? Like it sounds like someone made that up, but that was actually happening. And I'm like, did did no grown up work there? Was like nobody willing to be the grown up to be like, you can't be drunk in other people's cubicles and saying weird sexist things to them. It's bad. Right. Um, and in a workplace, obviously those are very different stakes, but like, I think it's still that same problem of like, nobody wants to be in charge of like making things like less fun, even if in fact, like you can't just have infinite fun. It becomes really, really horrible for some folks. Right. So this world is, is kind of like, in in fact, he invokes William Burroughs uh, at the very end of the story, but it's kind of like this William Burroughs sort of aesthetic going on of almost like masquerade uh, in this virtual environment, you know, and, and people are kind of taking on different characters, you know, as you say, written in 1993, and yet it evokes all kinds of things. I mean, there's hints of kind of hacky deep fake maneuvers to uh, change how people appear or what they do. There's, you know, all of the stuff certainly around the reactions that the community has to the harms and then the kind of response that the, the the wizards or the technicians who are responsible for managing the space have, it really does seem to presage a lot of the arc we've been on with a company like Facebook. I think there's like a real utopic impulse in how we talk about technology, right? And and you can see this in you know, a lot of the kind of early Silicon Valley rhetoric or like how people talk about like Xerox Park or, you know, Atari Labs or any of these kinds of spaces. And like, it's often like, I mean, there's a euphoria to it. And 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 I'm not saying that, well, I'm saying it critically, but like in the sense that I would also criticize myself, right? Like there's something so intoxicating and delightful and, and like that sense of possibility and wonder is so powerful and it's so real But I also think there's a way that like it makes us all children where we're like so excited that we don't like slow down and think about what we're doing. And so it's like, you just have to be really careful, right? And I think we're seeing these conversations broadly, like we're seeing them with like immersive theater and like kind of like in real life games, like alternate reality games or like, you know, kind of environmental design and things like this. Like, and and there's places that we're really smart about it and they're really careful about it. And there's places where you're just like, oh no, oh no, oh no, right? And I talk to my students a lot about the idea of affordances, right? Like I teach uh, game design, I teach history of video games and, you know, affordances at a really basic level. It's like, what is that thing made for, right? So like a button is made for pushing. So the affordance of a button is pushing. If you're building an environment or you're building a space or you're building a system or you're building a community, you're also designing affordances. And if one of the affordances is you can like build a virtual version of someone and then rape it in a public living room, like, maybe that was bad design, right? Like maybe you should not have made that thing that way. And I think often like people build these things and they don't think through that fully because they're so excited. I I love this example. My friend, Stephen Conway, who teaches in Australia and and does design is really smart. He was asked to consult on this like live action thing where the players had fake guns, but they're being kind of like accosted by real actors playing the enemies. I think it is zombie theme. And he was like, you have to have some way the game ends slightly before the actor gets in range like physical range of the players because the players are going to be upset and scared, even though it's a game, because that's the goal of the games that they be upset and scared in that moment. And they're going to hit people. Right. And they're like, why would anyone do that? Nobody would do that. Right. Like I can't believe they would do that. And of course they run like one demo and they just stop it immediately because the first player that's like confronted by an actor clubs them with the fake gun. Right. And like, 
It's not because the player is a terrible person. It's not because the actor was like, none of them were doing anything wrong. The system had created a situation in which the most likely outcome was that poor actor got clubbed with a fake gun, right? Like, that's not even any malice, right? You can have a lot of harm with no malice if the system is allowing for harm. So there's a lot of that kind of language in here in this story about trying to understand the connection between you know, online circumstances and, and offline harm, like actual harm, physical harm, psychological trauma, uh, that kind of thing. One of the things that you were commenting on in that tweet, of course, was uh, the direction we appear to be going in, uh, <laughs> that Facebook has, has now announced its intent to build what it calls a metaverse. And we know very little about how it will moderate that space, um, just the earliest inklings um, from the new CTO, Andrew Bosworth, who's who's talked about wanting to make it a, a Disney-like space, um, but also acknowledge that meaningful moderation is going to be very difficult in that type of environment. What do you imagine will go on from here? How, how will this unfold? I mean, they already have a groping problem. MIT Review covered that last year. I mean, I don't even know how many people they have on the platform right now. It can't be that many proportionally to like how many people are on Facebook itself, right? Um, so they already have a problem. Um, there was another story like this past week, I think on Insider about um, someone reporting that, you know, she was groped by a gang of male avatars in the in the metaverse, right? So I think like <laughs> they've already built a system in which this can happen and is happening. And I'm already seeing discourse unfold where it's like, oh, that's not real. But I really think like that kind of dismissal, it misses how much online and games, and and those aren't necessarily synonymous, but like are integrated into our daily life. And I think it also really misses what has been an increasingly sophisticated conversation about kinds of harm and kinds of abuse, right? I think we've been having culturally, and it's really been led by a lot of work in fields like psychology and social work, right? Where it's like, yeah, like if someone punches you, that's abusive, right? But also if someone like constantly says mean things to you or lies to you, like that's also not okay. And it's also abusive, right? So we have, there's different categories of these things, but they're all harmful. And we can't just dismiss one because it's not like, quote unquote, the worst one or something, right? And so, you know, I I don't know how equipped the company is to deal with this. And they, I have seen nothing in how they handle, you know, hate groups on Facebook, misinformation on Facebook. Like they're just kind of starting to have a conversation about that. And it's late, right? Like the the cart and the horse and the barn, they're in the wrong order here. And I, I just, I want to be really excited, but in fact, I am not excited. I'm terrified. I mean, there's other logistical problems, right? Of like huge parts of the U S like don't even have high speed internet. So like, who is this for? Um, but I think there's, there's like a really fundamental kind of like design and management problem that I've seen zero conversation about in, in like the official sense, right? I've seen a lot of concern, um, from critics, from historians, from potential users, from journalists, um, from women who have been on the internet before, right? But I'm, I'm not seeing kind of like a forward thinking or, or like, it just doesn't seem to be part of their concern, right? A, 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 like the creation level, because like this, if you're going to make a good place, like that has to be your first, <laughs> that has to be there in the beginning. You can't just like later come in and be like, oh, let's retcon this. It was not a rape playground. It was a nice place. And like, it's not a nice place. They already have a huge problem and they don't seem equipped to deal with it or prepared to deal with it. 
one of the things that struck me as a kind of a weird parallel in the story is when these, you know, technicians decide uh, essentially to kind of give up on trying to moderate the space and instead to kind of allow the users to make their own decisions. So to set up this sort of alternate governance structure and, you know, I was kind of in my head, I was thinking, you know, this isn't, it's not quite the oversight board, but it's a little bit like that. Like they, they've kind of like decided, well, this is really complicated and too hard to do. And we need uh, somebody else to make this decision. So we're going to, I don't know, introduce a new way of doing this. It's hard to know how well something like that might work if it was put in in the first place versus kind of like shoehorned in later. Like, and, and I don't know, right? Like I, I do think there's, examples of moderation that works effectively, but I think inherently it's kind of expensive and inefficient. Um, And I think some things are supposed to be inefficient, right? Like education is inefficient. It is not efficient to learn things. It is efficient to keep doing the thing you're already good at, but like there's reasons to learn things, right? Similarly, there's reasons to build communities and to make places for people to connect. Um, But I'm not sure that those line up with the kinds of aims that corporate entities have. Um, If your goal is to make money, an inefficient moderation structure is going to be really unappealing. But then what are you building in the absence of that inefficient moderation structure? That does seem to be the problem in the Lambda Moo space, as well as uh, maybe the problem in Facebook that it's about scale. Uh, Eventually, somebody comes in the door or many somebodies that are going to challenge, you know, what you've built, challenge the architecture um, and challenge the safety of the of the of the group. Yeah. And I, I think something I've been thinking about a lot is like, for some reason, I get called for jury duty all the time. Like, I don't know why. I know it's I've read about how like the algorithm isn't really random. So like once you're called, you're more likely to get called. I get called a lot, right? Like my partner has never been called. I've been called like over and over and over again. So I've I've been on some juries um, and they're almost always civil suits. And, you know, I think about that because, you know, like one of them was a medical malpractice thing and another one um, was actually about uh, a fight in a bar or like an assault in a bar and whether the bar was responsible for the assault occurring in the bar. And I was an alternate, so I was gone before they actually decided, and I don't know what they decided. I do think, like, regardless of what was decided, like, that was a legitimate question, right? Like, a good question is, if there's an assault in the bar because the bar is understaffed and they're ignoring the aggressive person because they're friends, like, they're friends with one of the staff or they know them or something, and then that person really hurts someone, like whose bad judgment was that, right? And like, are they responsible for that bad judgment? And is the business responsible for that bad judgment? Um, So if you build a space, if you're a big company and you build a space and then you let it be feral and there are people sexually assaulting people in it, like whether or not you're legally culpable for that, I would say you're kind of responsible for that, right? Like you kind of made that happen. Um, And certainly, you know, Facebook has been implicated in some things. Uh, Siva Vadya Nathan, who wrote, the Googleization of everything and then anti-social media, right, has talked about this a lot, that like Facebook builds systems that cause really serious problems, but they don't really seem willing or equipped to confront that, right? And so we're kind of left. And I think in some ways, like companies aren't equipped to make good moral decisions for the benefit of society. Um, and so at that point, like, what are our options and what are our solutions? Um, and I'm not sure. So. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if Andrew Bosworth from Meta now were here, he might say, you know, you can't hang this on us. We 
you know, connect people, we create an environment to connect people. Um, and then when they get inside that environment, you know, we'll do our best, but at the end of the day, human nature is human nature. How do you think about that kind of, of response? If that's the case, it was irresponsible to build that platform and it should not exist. And by building it, you are making a choice to enable harm. Fair enough. What's next for you? What are you going to continue to work on in this space? Will you be looking at uh, at the metaverse or trying to create an alternative to it? <laughs> I'm definitely not going to create an alternative. I actually, um, <laughs> most of my design work is like tabletop games, but I, I love games. I love the internet. When it seems like there are people that I actually care to interact with on there, I'll probably go check it out. We'll see if it lasts that long, right? Like I'm, I think with many things, like, I'm like, is this just like a way to get investments so you can like have money? You know, like what's, what's the goal here? So I I don't know, like, right, we'll see. But, you know, I would love, I would love to see something really cool. I would be excited for that. I think all the time about my favorite job interview that I knew I wasn't getting the job and I I have a job, so I don't care. Right. But they were like, they wanted someone to do um, project management, which is, you know, I would love to do, but they're like, oh, like, what do you want out of virtual reality? And I was like, I want joy and wonder and transcendent experiences. Like, I want things I cannot get in real life um, that are beyond what I can imagine, right? Like, I want to fly. I want to, like, be in the deep ocean. Like, I want to see a world that doesn't already exist for me. And I could hear, like, they're like, I can't hang up because that's rude, but I want to hang up because they wanted someone to, like, make, like, simulations to train people how to do surgery, which is extremely valuable, right? Like, I know, like, that is great. It is so exciting to do surgery. It is really good to have ways to let people practice more before they hurt someone and that we can get more competent surgeons. I love that. I just don't care. Right. Like it's not the thing that like makes me excited to work around technology. Um, but you know, I, I love the idea of being able to see the world as like bigger and better and stranger than it is. And I, I think like, we're seeing some of that happening in the art space. You know, I, I love the work that Meow Wolf does building virtual spaces, you know, well, real spaces, but I would love to see like that kind of like enthusiasm and creativity and wonder. Like I would love that. Like if I'm going to be in VR, I want at least it to be at least that cool. Right. And I just want to loop back. You mentioned kind of a Disney type experience. I think something that's so important to keep in mind with Disney is like, first of all, I love theme parks. So like, right. But like, they spend millions of dollars making it nice to be there. Like if you act up at Disney World, they ban you forever. You can never come back, right? Like, and so they're able to enact, enact like all these policies because basically if you're a jerk, they will throw you out and you will be locked out of the Magic Kingdom for the rest of your days, right? And like, that takes some real willingness to be like, that is not the customer we want, Right. There are customers we don't want in our Magic Kingdom that we don't want in our theme parks because they ruin it for everyone else. And then we're going to have a problem. And so they'll enact that. And that doesn't mean they never have problems, right? Like there's been some like kind of famous incidents of problems, but it does mean that like people's sense of risk, if they're acting badly or disrupting other people's time is actually high, right? Like there's something at stake. Whereas I think a lot of times um, people building virtual environments build environments where nothing is at stake. And when nothing's at stake and there's no accountability, people act bad. This story written in 1993 really captured a lot of the issues that we're dealing with now. Is there anyone else you're reading at the moment that you feel like may be as prescient about where we'll be a few decades from now? Oh man. I, you know, I, I really like, again, like I'm kind of an optimist at heart. I really love um, Bo Ruberg's work looking at kind of they have a new book, a newish book called like video games have always been queer. And I love this idea of kind of like refinding how like that space to be weird and to be different and to like, again, like kind of 
do things that don't necessarily serve some kind of financial purpose or, or professional purpose, but are really about kind of like exploration and joy and wonder. And um, so, yeah, I love Bo Ruberg's work. I think, I think they're doing great stuff. Adrian Shaw started a, did kind of like the, a video game archive focused on LGBTQ games. And that was recently moved to the strong because they have resources to help preserve this. But like, I love like the approach there is really like, if anyone said this was queer, it goes in the spreadsheet because we're looking for how people see themselves, even if like the maker of the game was like, no, that was not intended at all. Like, it's still like an interesting um, thing. I, I just, I want more space for people to be safe and happy. And, and I know that always sounds like so naive. And I think like this cynical version of me that was like 25 would be laughing at myself right now. But I don't know. Like, I, I think sometimes there's a lot of, of kind of like cynicism where it's like, oh, I have to learn all these new things. And I'm like, I love learning new things. I love that there are so many new ways to be nice to people and to see them as they are and to recognize them. And like, I want that world, right? Like, I don't. And so like, I think always, like, I always am like looking at what's happening in kind of like queer activist spaces, what's happening in, you know, community spaces. There's a ton of mutual aid that happens in my neighborhood. And like, you know, I want the world of love fridges that are being stocked and people are posting saying I desperately need a coat and someone gets it for them, right? Like that's the world I want. And I think I think there's ways the virtual world can enable that and can provide space for us. It can let us access things we can't access. It can make people who have trouble leaving their houses. Um, it can give them a bigger world that is full of connection. And that's what I want. I want a world full of connection where we see each other and try to meet each other's needs. And I, I do think there's space for that. And I, I think there are people writing about technology that still see that. And so I want that optimism. I have that optimism. I just, we need to be real careful. Carly, thank you so much. Yeah. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.